0: Welcome to Truth to Power on Forward Radio. I'm uh, Hart Hagen and I'm joined today by Jake Bush. Jake, how are you doing today?
1: I'm okay, I'm tired. I am very much trying to be a normal person and wake up at normal times. And for some reason that doesn't agree with me,
0: so. Okay, well, we'll uh, (laughs) we'll energize you with a discussion of Fred Hampton. So let's talk a little bit about Fred Hampton and who Fred Hampton was. Do you wanna start or you want me to start?
1: No, oh, take it away. You've always okay. got something to say.
0: So. <laughs> Some say I have too much to say, but. <laughs> I'm not saying uh, it. Yeah, you're not saying it. You're thinking it, but not saying it. <laughs> anyway, so Fred Hampton died at the age of 21 in 1969. He was a Black Panther, he was the leader of the Black Panther Party of Illinois. Uh, He died at the hands. This has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. He died at the hands of the FBI and the Chicago police. They were raiding the home, uh, supposedly to look for illegal weapons, but we know now that it was a straight up assassination. You know, smoking guns, figuratively speaking, smoking guns. All the shots that were fired were fired toward the Black Panthers, not toward the police. Uh, the, there, there was a you know a, a mattress that was blood-stained where that showed that you know, Fred Hampton had been drugged, he had been drugged bad, uh, and he was completely defenseless when they put two bullets in his head. They wanted him gone. This we now know this was part of Cointel Pro the co-intelligence program of the FBI, which was officially discovered a couple of years later when people broke into an FBI office in Pennsylvania. But this was a straight up murder assassination of an American citizen in his own home uh, by the powers that be, by, uh, completely orchestrated by the FBI. Uh, the investigation turned up a sheet of paper that was a diagram, a floor plan uh, that, that uh, of the home that indicated where Fred would be sleeping. That was uh, what was his name. William O'Neill was the person who was a uh, who was an inf- infiltrator. He was working for the FBI. He you know he, he's the person who cooked Fred's last meal and drugged him. He's also the person that gave the FBI a bunch of information that led them to uh, successfully quote unquote successfully assassinate. An American citizen. Why? Because he was the threat of a good example. I mean, it's the same reason the United States is going around the world pummeling the smallest, most defensive, most defenseless countries because they're they, if they threaten to be a good example, they threaten to be an example of something that is successful, even though it doesn't operate according to the dictates of American capitalism. And Fred Hampton was a you know, we can talk about whether. He was nonviolent, but he certainly was the victim of violence, and he was certainly leaned heavily toward nonviolence and uh, even I mean, under at least self-defense. Yeah, you know? I mean, right. this wasn't yeah. a guy. And, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, he, he actively defense, right. Yeah, he actively told people we're not going to do offensive measures. Right. You know, defensive measures another story. But right. I don't know. You don't hear a lot of "don't tread on me" types uh, get on their soapbox. And talk about libertarian hero Fred Hampton murdered by the state. Uh, you don't really get that for some reason.
0: Um, How come? I mean, why aren't the uh, Second Amendment uh, or you know the people that advocate the Second Amendment why aren't they talking about Fred
1: Hampton? I'm scratching my head over it, man. There's got to be something. I mean, really, there's got to be something. Maybe he was the wrong color. Yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's it's a really it's it's really hard to to give this this case the gravity it deserves. I think, um, but if and maybe I sound pithy, but it's just such a fascinating case because it really sort of shows a lot of the underlying uh, power dynamics that kind of go unspoken in America. Um, this was one where it was all made very explicit and very clear that you know a man talking about self-determination and self-defense for himself and his community that's supposed to be sacrosanct in this country but for him obviously it was not uh and you know again like we always talk about you know these loony lefties that that speculate about the the cia and the fbi and all these conspiracy theories here's one that's not a theory <laughs> you oh, know it's yeah. exactly as bad as any conspiracy theorist would have thought it was but it was pretty much obvious to everyone involved. It's been written about ad nauseum. Uh, as you said, they went to court, they won a civil suit. You know, it it's one of those things that you can't really argue with this. You know, this is sort of the trump card, if you're right. the type of person who likes to argue about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm not. <laughs> and even even Wikipedia
0: is not lying about it. Wikipedia has all kinds of lies related to the JFK assassination. You know, it's just it's a taken they they adopt the official narrative it's taken as a given. I think they'd have nine kinds of hell to pay if they went against that I mean they act, they act like uh, the rifle was was the rifle uh, right. th- th- that was used anyway. That's another story but uh, for for some reason, Wikipedia has exactly the wrong uh, opinion about the JFK assassination, but they don't mind telling the truth when it comes to Fred Hampton. But the thing is, you know, you can tell the truth, but if it's not, if it's not in the mainstream media, people don't know about it. So people don't know about this. Uh, I heard the name Fred Hampton first from Noam Chomsky within the last couple of years. You have to go read your own damn books if you're gonna know anything about Fred Hampton. And, uh, he was the in my opinion, He was the heir apparent to the mantle of, of, uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. He had all the talent yeah. of them. He was 20, the tender age of 21 years old. He would have been the next Martin Luther King. And he was the, you know, he, he was the threat. Uh, he, he you know, J Edgar Hoover, I've been reading a book by, about how how they targeted. Martin Luther King, in terms of the, uh, you know, trying to discredit him. Right. J. Edgar Hoover was a straight up anti-MLK racist. When he, when he, uh, when MLK won the Nobel Peace Prize, J. Edgar Hoover said, man, they must have been scraping the bottom of the barrel. To, you know, pull out this pile of garbage, you know, just, mm-hmm. he, he was a piece of work. And he was head of the FBI for 50 years. And now we know that there was COINTELPRO, which was, you know, against the, uh, it was against the civil rights movement.
1: Right, and and you know, I think you've done a pretty good job contextualizing sort of the seriousness of the situation. Um, but if I could rewind just a little bit about how you're saying that, you know, Please these say. are these are things that we don't really get taught. You know, it's very hard to actively or it's very hard to passively come across this information. You have to actively sort of oh, yeah, it right, right. Now, I want to point out, that's about to change. They are making a film, um, I think based somewhat off the Jeffrey Haas book, Haas being the attorney yeah. who worked for the Black Panthers and a number of organizations in Chicago. Um, and, you know, it's starring like Daniel Kalaya, um, Keith Stanfield, like big stars, right? Which, first of all, it's a little weird that you're going to have Kalaya play uh, Fred Hampton when he's like, you know, 20 years older than Fred Hampton was when he died, but that's neither here nor there. But, um, you know, I I think it's worth noting, though, that a lot of this stuff, I think, is going to start being talked about soon. Uh, Part of the part of it's just the reason that you wanted, you came to me with this idea in the first place was because it's important right now it's relevant it's like directly relevant to things that are going on right now in the news
0: i wish um, i could say they're talking about it because we're talking
1: about it but i <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, i don't think
1: we have that kind of market share. right right um but you know i think it's just it's important to talk about these things right now uh because i think we need to let people know one the greater context of like what this was all about and two um Just talking about it does not necessarily mean that you're making a change. Um, And I think that a lot of the times when we get these movies and TV shows and all this kind of stuff, people kind of assume like, well, things are changing. It's like, not really. I think we're in the what are you going to do about it phase more than anything. You know, I think that, you know, the government's just kind of at this point seeing like people are going to be talking about this. So what? What are you going to do about it? Nothing's going to change. Um, and so I think that it's important that we, again, contextualize what Hampton's whole mission was, what was he fighting for, uh, so that people have an idea of like what's next? How do you honor this kind of legacy uh, beyond just sort of singing his praises?
0: Right, that's why today we're going to talk about the Black Panther points and beliefs. There's 10 points and there's 10 beliefs. And uh, we both love policy because, um, you know, being literate about policy to me is like being literate about you, you, you can only uh, make so much of a difference, as, especially as a group. You know, we're, we, we believe in the collective power of the people and the people collectively can only make so much of a difference unless we're literate as to the policy proposals. If Because, you, you know, anyway, I, I liken it to literacy. You can only learn so much if you can't read. You have right. to be able, you know, if you have, and you can only make so much of a difference unless you know what kind of policies you, you want and why, and also who's going to be in opposition to those policies when you bring them up. So right. we have a, a couple of handy-dandy documents here, the, the uh, Black Panther points and beliefs, and why don't we start at the top? So what we want now, number one, the Black Panthers point number one, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. So Jake, somebody might say, we already have freedom. What do you think about that?
1: I think that it's telling how they immediately define the term after stating it. So they say freedom, but they don't just stop there they go on to say, we want power to determine the destiny of our Black community, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's to preempt the kind of question you just asked, which is like, well, we already have it. Well, right there, do do people have this power to determine their own destiny Mm -hmm. and actually have a meaningful say in what happens to and within their community, right? Um, And I mean, I would say largely, no, (laughs) they don't have that power. and, and I think that that's sort of a, it's, it's really great to see this as the number one point uh, because it sets the tone for everything to follow, including the 10 beliefs.
0: But so Fred Hampton, I mean, the Black Panthers are saying, when they say we want freedom, they're suggesting they don't have freedom.
1: Right, yeah, and, and they're saying that in this case, the power to determine the destiny of their black community is their defining criteria for for freedom. Um, and I think that's a really powerful statement. And, and it's something that I don't think people have really been able to grapple with, especially nowadays, a lot of like the sort of think tank or like, you know, uh, nonprofit kind of zone is always using terms like, you know, you're determined the destiny and self determination and community and all this stuff. But like, we tend to lose sight of what that actually means. What that really looks like in practice
0: well one definition of freedom is freedom is participation in power yeah it's not just the freedom to like we, we have you know we have the freedom we can go where we want we can marry who we want we can but the, anyway you can even say that you don't really have the freedom of association if you there's so many ways in which i mean freedom of association is like one of the five elements of the first amendment um, you, know, they, you know the government is always breaking up uh you know telling people how anyway but freedom is participation in power somebody you know power is being exercised right. and if you don't have your share of the power then power is being exercised against you right yeah
1: and, and it's it sort of ties into some of the the sort of like dialectical reasoning that I've tried to get myself more involved with and sort of this understanding that there's constantly motion, right? And there's motion in terms of history. And, and I think that, that gets lost, especially in sort of the centrist crowd of like, well, you know, we're going to freeze things. We just need to go back to normal. Everything's going to be normal and we're going to hold it there uh, when that's just not how history works. <laughs> there's always movement, whether you want it to be or not, or whether you have power or not. Uh, And power is always being exercised, whether you want it to be or not, or whether you have any hand in it. or not. And that's what we see here. And and if you don't mind me reading the next two, I'd like to read this at the same time, because they point to this, you know. Uh, So number two on the what we want here is we want full employment for our people, right? And number three is we want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our Black and oppressed communities, right? So what we're seeing here is an acknowledgement that no, there's, there's always this movement of power. Things are moving, right? They're just moving beyond our grasp at this motion, at this moment. And they're pointing directly to the capitalist class in the third point as being, you know, the main agents of this, right? As the movers and shakers and the drivers uh, in these communities, you know? Um, so it's it's interesting. So they've sort of set up this understanding that there is our Black community, right? At this moment things are moving within it and around it and being done to it. But we don't have any say in that.
0: Right. Isn't capitalism the American way?
1: (laughs) Well, technically. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if you want to get down to it, yeah, it is. Isn't capitalism Um, the source of our freedoms? Right. So that's, that's a great question because that brings up a sort of ontological question of like, how do you conceptualize freedom? Like, how do you know freedom? What does that feel like? What does that look like? You know? And I think that if anything, and maybe this is just recency biased, I don't mean to project my own understanding in 2020 on documents that were written in the 1960s. Um, But I think most Americans think of freedom based on how many different colors of iPhone cases they could buy. It's consumer
0: choice. If you have consumer choice, that's all the freedom you want. Sit down,
1: shut up. Yeah. Do you have 10 different brands of bread that you can buy in the store? doesn't matter if you can afford them. It doesn't matter if they're in stock. It just matters that there's 10 different brands you could buy conceivably. Um, and, and that is, I think it kind of undermines a lot of our understanding of freedom or democracy when we understand that there are legitimate definitions of those terms that we just don't use. Right. And that I think it's impressive that they, they, intentionally did that in this document because um, I also want, uh, in this do, this document the what we want now uh, and I think it's important to note I'm pretty sure the people who wrote this did not believe that the American government was going to give them any of these things right so then that also begs the question of you know who are you demanding this from how and who's making the demand right mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that makes it a really effective Political document in a way, right? Did you want to read the next one?
0: Okay, so uh, well, uh, just number two is we want full employment for our people. So I mean, isn't that just full employment? Doesn't that just mean giving people a government job and they're leaning on a shovel?
1: You know, you know that's that's an interesting question because that's one that could be uh, uh, achieved in a variety of ways, and actually there are a lot of like. Fairly milquetoast, like slightly left of center, like think tank policy papers that show you a direct path how to get there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and it sort of shows how the class balance have, of power has really shifted out of the workers' favor over the last six, seven do- uh, decades. You know what I mean? Because uh, in the 1940s, of course, we got the New Deal. Uh, and I think a, there's a, a legitimate historical reading of that that situation as being one that was to placate the left, right? It wasn't a victory for the left. It was actually to placate them and make them feel better so they would stop being so revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in this, this document here written up again in 1960 1960s, just two decades after the New Deal. Um, they're demanding full employment, which again, we could do. Like the, if the government wanted to do it without even changing too much, they really could do it. Um, but they wouldn't even go that far which I think tells you that the government didn't feel enough of a threat at the time to where they were like, gosh, we got to throw him a bone. You know what I mean? They didn't even do that. They didn't even throw him a bone. (laughs) Right. Um, And I think that tells you a lot about Hampton's impact and his influence and and what his organizing was accomplishing, that they thought he was such a threat that they had to take him out the hard way um, before they even got to the step of doing – Uh, throwing them a bone, so to speak.
0: So number three, we want to end robbery by the capitalists of our black and oppressed community. So he's saying capitalists are robbing his community. How does that work?
1: So typically speaking, that would happen. I mean, I I could get really- I'm an investor
0: and I'm here to help you.
1: Right. We're going to
0: revitalize your community with our investment. We're going to bring in millions of dollars and revitalize your community because we're going to invest in our in your community. What could be wrong with that?
1: Right. I'm smiling because this is a pitch I've heard just so many times and it yeah. never gets right. old. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, for one thing, under capitalism, you you don't do anything unless there is a, a very clear and relatively short term benefit for you. You're going to extract money back out
0: of that community, right? thats you, well, you're going to you're going to launder your organized crime money by put investing it
1: in real estate. You know, mm-hmm. these are things that that happen across the board historically. But you don't even have to go to those extremes if you are. And and this is what I want to do. I want to try to understand the the mindset, right, which I can only do so much. I'm, I'm like a Very privileged cushy white dude born in 1994. Okay, I, my experience is so far removed. I have to do this disclaimer so far removed from anybody in Fred Hampton's milieu. Okay, but what I see here is sort of a Pretty so close. We're, reading.
0: we're we're white people, but we're angry white people. So that makes this <laughs> okay,
1: right? We're we're angry for, Fred Hampton. Right, <laughs> right. not at him. Right. Um, but you know, I think what I see here is a fairly c- close reading of of Marxist economics. You know, and and Marxist economics suggests that the role of the capitalist and the only way they can make profit. And the only way they would be doing anything anyway is that they were making profit. So if they're doing something, it's because of profit. So when they do things, you know, here you go, um, what they're doing is trying to find ways to create a surplus value and then extract the surplus value and move it to their own communities and their own neighborhoods, their gated community 34 miles away from Wherever they're they're setting up shop, you know, like in Louisville, it'd be like, hey, I'm opening up a shop in Russell, and I'm moving it all the way out to Portland. Or well, what's not wrong uh, with Anchorage?
0: letting capital make all the decisions?
1: Well, the problem is that capital has one function, which is to reproduce itself. Right. Mm-hmm. It has yeah. no regard um, whether the people exercising capital wins or. But anything there's else.
0: compassionate capitalism.
1: Supposedly, (laughs) but this is all about, this. that's from the liberal perspective that only goes internally, right? It's an idealistic, it's in your head. I'm doing this because I'm compassionate. But when you look at the hard numbers, the hard facts of this economic system, the only way you're gonna make money, which is the only reason you do anything anyway, uh, is to pay somebody less than what they're producing, Mm -hmm. right? And then you have to move that money elsewhere period. That's just the laws of, of how this stuff moves, right? That's, that's not about you. That's not about how nice you are or woke you are. Uh, it's purely well, it's, about- It's not the, as if the state the,
0: is neutral in all this. I think you used the phrase, the first time I'd heard it, that, oh, the, uh, <clears throat> what was it? it was something about, uh, the state creates the market. I mean, there's no market without a state. You know, the state is the, the, the author and perfector of the market. Whatever the market is, is what the state says it is.
1: Right, so the, the market the is
0: just sitting idly by. It's not as if the city, state, federal, uh, regional authorities, it's not as if they're just sitting idly by saying, oh, the, we can't touch the free market. No, they're creating the market.
1: It created the market. And, and also, I would argue, inaction is action. So <laughs> right. in the moments where the state does do that, where they sit back and they're like, well, hey, that's right. the market. I can't do anything. That's also an action. So
0: laissez-faire is a selective enterprise. 100%. You know, it doesn't exist
1: in a natural vacuum. Uh, you know, I don't know what a historical libertarian came up with that idea that, you know, the natural state is a capitalist one, because uh, that's just, again, it's completely a historical. There's no backing for that anywhere, (laughs) you know, uh, unless the Cato Institute made up some stuff and published it because they have so much money. Uh, But hey, I don't have that kind of Cato money. So
0: should we go on to number four? Uh, First, let me just say, if you're just joining us, this is Hart Hagen and Jake Bush, and we are with Forward Radio and uh, 106.5. And we are talking about Fred Hampton today. Fred Hampton was a Black Panther. So we decided to read from the Black Panther points and beliefs. So we're reading from the 10 points that the Black Panthers want. And number four is we want decent housing fit for shelter of human beings, by the way. you know shelter of human beings it's like what housing is not fit for human beings well in in the l a schools, they had these like uh, box cars, et etc, these outbuildings that were so dilapidated the city decided not to buy them for to housing homeless people. so you have these classrooms that were not fit for the housing of people who had no homes and uh, so Anyway, so, but it says, we want decent housing fit for shelter of human beings. Well, Jake, isn't it, isn't it their own problem? It it shouldn't a person's housing just, I mean, you you eat what you kill in this world, you know, the world doesn't owe you a living, the world doesn't owe you housing.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, so part of my uh, day job uh, in the past was to do uh, inspections on housing units, right? Because I was part of distributing grant money to to people who needed housing, so I had to inspect the housing and make sure if it was up to code. You'd be shocked at how much is not up to code. First of all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to answer your, your point about how, you know, isn't that sort of your responsibility? Like if we are a country of self-determination and, you know, the individual doing for themselves and so on and so forth, fine, I'm just gonna accept that premise, right? But the problem with that is that all housing, in some way, just as we said, the government creates the market, really. I mean, the state will manage a market, that's just part of it. Um, you know, what they do and don't do to subsidize housing Uh, differs greatly, let's say, uh, based on your skin color, based on your, you know, country of origin. Uh, Historically speaking, that's the case because you look at especially the post-war boom after the 40s, when you had all this housing being built, right? Not just public housing, but just tons of housing developments. All of that was subsidized, (laughs) you know, Uh, whether it's on the the supply side or, or whether it's on the demand side, like there's always been subsidies to get housing built. And, and quality housing built in many cases, you know. Uh, if it's not the government, it's the banks. You know, the gov- the banks are the ones who are you know lending out to people. Yeah, the so who home mortgage
0: to? deduction is a subsidy for people that own homes. You're taking it from the the general uh, taxpayer and giving it to people that own homes. That's a subsidy. It's a big subsidy. It's one for of subsidy. people's major motivations for getting a home is to be able to take that deduction.
1: I, shoot, it's been on my mind. Right. I bought a house in January. You think right. I'm not thinking about that? Of course I am, right. you know? Um, and, and that's the thing that I think people on the left have long understood is that we're very selective about what we call a subsidy and what subsidies are okay and what are stigmatized, right? Uh, and I think that the kind of housing that, you know, the Black Panthers were referring to, and they are speaking to impoverished communities, mostly Black communities, People who you know are, are in public housing or are on some sort of subsidy for their housing in a lot of cases, uh, those are the people they're trying to organize, right? And I think what they're pointing out here is, look, the government has done everything they can to arrange the housing market to allow, frankly, hard people like you and me <laughs> to be able to buy a house as painlessly as possible. Um, but for well, us... Let's,
0: let's talk about reparations. Like how many generations do you have to steal people's wages before you feel like you owe them something?
1: Right. Right. And that's, that's exactly what's going on here. It's, it's directly seeing that, look, this country literally wouldn't exist without the labor of unpaid black people. Literally wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and we have shifted our housing markets. We have pulled all the levers we can to get white people to buy single family households in sub suburbs, right?
0: So the, Michelle Obama pointed out that the White House was built by slaves and Bill O'Reilly had the, uh, had been t- the temerity and the wisdom
1: to say, but they were well-fed slaves. <laughs> you know, I was expecting something gross. I was, <laughs> but I, I wasn't sure how gross it was gonna yeah, be. <laughs> right. It was grosser than I thought, well done. Yeah, they were well-fed slaves. Oh, my God. I was told anyway. That is, oh, that gives me a little bit of a chill. All right, great. So, (laughs) you know, this is just one of those demands, though, that I think, again, it it brings up these interesting ontological questions for me uh, of how we define decent housing, how we define, you know, the state's role. Um, Because as you and I said, the state's role is paramount no matter, you know, what kind of housing we're talking about. Um, so I just, I I love that they're, they're situating it in such a way that makes a little more sense and is less. What if
0: if the state's first and foremost obligation was to eliminate poverty? I mean, before anything else, before any wars, Mm -hmm. before any ideological posturing, what if the first and foremost thing was to eliminate poverty? And What if people had the, the amount of money annually that would just... Okay, poverty is off the table. So no poverty anymore. We're not going to do poverty. The poverty thing is not going to be a thing. And then how would people spend their time? And Martin Luther King pointed out that, you know, people don't do their best work when they're working for slave wages. That's not when people do their best work. I mean, what if people weren't scrambling around in desperation, trying to provide for the basics of life? That's why the, the DSA's um, Green New Deal starts off saying, we're gonna decommodify survival. You know, Survival is no longer a commodity. You no longer have to buy survival. So mm-hmm. healthcare, housing, the basics of life, food, You know, education, you no longer have to buy survival. What if that was the government's first and foremost obligation is to make sure nobody is struggling to survive?
1: Well, I think the government's priorities would look a whole lot like this list that we're reading. Yeah, right. Uh, which, is, which is fun because, you know, the Black Panthers have been so vilified uh, that you're looking at this and it all feels like a bit of a no-brainer to me.
0: And so. We can't let people know the truth of the Black Panthers. That's dangerous. Number five, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. Tell it like it is, Right. right. Huey P. Newton. Uh, One of the founders of the Black Panther Party. We want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. And I can tell you as a history buff That uh, we don't learn true history. We learn a pro-establishment narrative. We learn a narrative that supports patriarchs. We learn a narrative that tells us anything and everything but how rights and privileges were extracted. They were not granted.
1: Right. right. And, and, you know, I, every country is going to you know, produce education materials that flatter the state. Like that's that's just a fact. You know? Right. Like anytime people talk about like what North Korean kids are taught in school, they're always like, well, it's always this just overblown propaganda. And it's like, well, I mean, what do you think we're learning? You know? So I think that I try to always take a small grain of salt when I look at these things. But I, I do think that again, I'm just talking about the quality of this document. I love how They kind of answer the questions uh, that they pose already, right? So they're talking about wanting education for our people, right? Now, I think a a weaker document would say we want free education for people, blah, blah, blah. But they straight up say, what kind of education? What's the purpose? Exposes
0: the true nature of this decadent American society. Our true history. Our our true true history. I saw something, a meme, if you will, uh, said uh, racism is so American that when you criticize racism, people think you're
1: criticizing America. Yeah, it's funny how that works that way, you know, um, and, and I think that, again, it, this sort of education is what's required if you're going to break that. Um, so, yeah, again, I, I, I think that this also points to uh, the, the theme here in these 10 points of what they want. Um, which comes back to self-determination, self-knowledge, self-actualization as our goals, Um, which again is just a much more aggressive and I think useful way to formulate, um, you know, the demands and the priorities of the state if that's what they were aiming for. But I don't know, maybe that's just, maybe I'm just biased.
0: (laughs) It's funny how they, you you know, we want education for our people. So you think they're going to talk about, we want free education, like you said, but what they're really getting at is, is uh, we want, we want education that teaches the truth of our history. And, you know, it's like, does, does black history in schools teach the truth? of our history, I have my doubts. I know that on Martin Luther King Day, it does not teach the true Martin Luther King. The the true Martin Luther King was a democratic socialist. The true Martin Luther King was a revolutionary. The true Martin Luther King wanted economic rights, not just civil and legal
1: rights. Right. He had a lot more in common with the people that we send hit squads into Latin America <laughs> for than, yeah. than any other, like, American leader, Yeah, you know? um, Right. Well, the U.S. was
0: at war with Christianity, if Christianity is to be broadly interpreted to include liberation theology. Right. Which uh, is like, read the Bible and see what it says and do what it says, you know. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right, love your yeah. enemy. I, I say, don't love your neighbors, even the scribes and the Pharisees do that. Love your enemies, right? You know, that, that's Christianity. That's what? it's like a version of Christianity. And we, the, the U.S. military was at war in Latin America for like literally, three, probably still <laughs> is. I mean, that's a communist, it's like that, uh, that bishop in Brazil oh, yeah. said. Uh, when I fed the poor, they called the, when I fed the poor, they called me a saint. When I asked why they were poor, they called me
1: a communist. Exactly. And, and it's so funny. I don't mean to get off too far on the tangent because we still Please have do. things get to off. cover, but well, tangents are us. <laughs> uh, tangents are what we do. That's true. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I talked to a good friend of mine who was raised Muslim, right? And he, he kept me on the phone for like two hours one night. Um, and part of what he wanted to talk about, the lion's share of it, was that he said, Jake, I feel bad. Like, I feel like I'm I'm kind of in a negative space here because, like, I am trying to understand, like, American history and specifically American theology. And he's like, I have such a negative opinion of Christians. And he's like, maybe I'm wrong for that. Please tell me I'm wrong. You grew up in the church, right? And I was like, look, man, I I don't, I can't blame you for that because you have not, I'm going to take a wild shot in the dark here that you have not encountered people who actually take this stuff seriously. You know what I mean? Because if people actually took what they were reading seriously, you would not be seeing this Jerry Falwell or, I mean, heck, Donald Trump (laughs) brand of (laughs) Christianity, you know, this, this idea of it just being this completely, um, you know, um, completely political in the partisan sense uh endeavor that's that's all about capital accumulation and power accumulation and uh xenophobia you know i was like these things are all completely antithetical seriously antithetical it is literally diametrically opposed (laughs) to to the stuff that i read when i was a kid i read the bible um and it certainly doesn't square with this this current form um so yeah it's it's that's just something that it's, it's really struck me as how obvious an issue that was when my buddy was talking to me. He was like, man, I don't get it. I don't understand like this Christianity thing. And I was like, well, I can't blame you because <laughs> you haven't exactly seen too much to, to be impressed by. Have you? Uh, we could do
0: a whole other episode on, I mean, I, I have a lot, I, I was in that movement for like 13 years yeah. and, um, I I sincerely believed it, and so did other people, but it's it's sincere indoctrination. It's a a sincere distortion. Yeah. Uh, uh, Anyway, um, number six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. Well, shouldn't, if you live in this country, you have all the rights and privileges of being an American, you should fight for America. What's wrong with that?
1: So, I'm just putting a bookmark in the, you have all the rights of this country. (laughs) Um, Because, again, I mean, we're talking about 1960s America. You know, I don't think that we have to spell that out for anybody on what that meant for Black people in this country. Actually, Um, we do, because people don't know. Yeah, you kind of have a point. (laughs) Um, You know, I I think that um, HBO just put out this new show. I forget the 60s. We have the
0: largest prison population in the world. We have 25% of the prisoners, most of our people of color. It's like uh, the uh, African-Americans are 14% of the population and 40% of the prisons. You know, and I'm then, glad that you, you and just Michelle did. Alexander, uh, you know, t- Michelle Alexander does some re- in her book, The New Jim Crow, does some really, you know, straightforward analysis and 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 proves to you that this is not because of crime. Black people are less likely to commit crime than white people. Black people are less likely to be drug dealers than white people. You could go on down the list.
1: Right. And, and, and I'm glad that you just interjected with that because I was thinking about uh, this, this HBO show that just came out, Lovecraft Country. I don't know if you heard of it. It was a book um, about a set, I think in the late 50s, early 60s, One, the main character is a World War II veteran, black guy. Um, but the first episode of the show deals with him having to travel through a sundown town, right, where he's explicitly told by a police officer, if you're still within the county lines by sundown, you will die, right? And I had to explain to my wife, 20 almost 27 years old she was like wait that's real that that was a thing sundown towns and i was like yeah yeah no that was that that's still a thing you I know mean, as far as i know you know i certainly have friends who don't really want to go to certain parts of this state even after dark um and that just points again people miss the history you know and people miss the present you're right i'm sitting here thinking In historical terms; it's still true and <laughs> when, I, when i went to jail for protesting there was a guy in jail who is an active military member. He's in the military, right? And he had, you know, blood coming out of his head because he got shot with pepper balls in the face. And I asked him what happened. He was like, I walked out to my car. <laughs> He's like, I'm not joking. He's like, I thought this whole, uh, um, uh, uh, what was it? The, the curfew. He was like, this, this curfew thing is ridiculous. I was offended by that. I'm, I'm offended that they would tell me I have to be indoors by a certain time an American citizen. He's like, so I, I you know, walked outside of my house for a little while, went to my car and they were on a roof and they shot me in the head with the pepper balls from a roof across the street. And it, you know, again, blood, you know. Um, so I think that is a perfect antidote to illustrate this point of like, look, if we're not gonna be treated as equal citizens, and this country is obviously not built for us, why on earth would we have to serve this country in the military?
0: Muhammad Ali ain't got no quarrel with no Viet Cong.
1: Right, (laughs) yes. Yeah, Yeah, I
0: got no, okay, the the real, the the story I didn't know about. So I mentioned Muhammad Ali and my mother didn't like him. She said, well, he was a draft dodger. That was, you know, that's why she didn't like him. He was a draft dodger. Well, he gave up his title. He was a world heavyweight champion, grew up, gave up his title, gave up his right to fight for three years while his case was pending. He was a genuine conscientious objector. He was a fighter who didn't want to go to war, not because he wasn't brave, but he did, he had no quarrel had and yeah. got no quarrel with the Viet Cong yeah
1: you know <laughs> and it's it's such a simple phrase but it's such a powerful one because you know as you said i mean this is a guy who and people forget that about about ali too it wasn't just that he ran into legal trouble it wasn't just that he gave up his title he literally couldn't do his job couldn't for years right, right. yeah that, and a lot of people thought that was the he end didn't of his know career. how it was
0: going to turn out that that's bravery that's yeah. that's moral courage it's that's like, guts, like man. Chris hedges talks about how in the on the battlefield, you see, uh, you see physical courage, but you don't often see moral courage. Moral courage is that that dis- that ex- displays moral
1: courage. I think so. Um, and, and you know, these these next uh, points I think tie directly into um, to some of the stuff we were talking about here. Uh, the next point directly is we want freedom for all black men held in or we want immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. So number after. seven,
0: we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people.
1: Yeah, and you know, could that be any more timely now too? <laughs> I mean, it's the uh, the exact same thing now. Uh, we're still demanding it, still hasn't changed. Um, and, and you know, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to tie in these next two as well yeah. because- yeah. They're, they're directly related. We want freedom for all Black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. And then number nine, we want all Black people, when brought to trial, to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from their Black communities, as defined by the Constitution. Mm-hmm. These are all things that are sort of basic needs. Things that are supposed to be addressed in the first place. I think that's what kind of astounds me. It doesn't surprise me. I'm not, you know, naive, really. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. But it is. it does kind of take me aback a little bit when I see people making simple demands like, I would like to be judged by a jury of my peers. You know, that's like saying I'd like to get up and when I make toast in the morning, I don't want it to be rotten, Yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. It's like that should be the baseline. <laughs> Um and we talk about the Panthers. Well,
0: white people are fair-minded
1: enough. <laughs> right. That's why they had to move all of the uh court cases with the Panthers to all white jurisdictions outside of the city. They did the same thing with Rodney King. You know, that's that's an old old thing that that that's in the playbook. Um, but it, it does sort of astound me how remember this is a revolutionary group. This is a group that's like priority number one from the FBI. Um And yet their demands are something as simple as (laughs) we want our constitutional right to a jury of our peers.
0: Well, if the FBI, we we know that the FBI just had a, they wanted MLK out of the way bad. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying they killed him, uh, but I'm saying they wanted, they, and he was nonviolent and, you know, imagine, how they felt about black people carrying guns for self-defense
1: well we saw that with with reagan in california you know they mm-hmm. didn't like that enough to make guns all but illegal in california mm-hmm. but, you know so much for the second amendment right right <laughs> i yeah. mean it, i think pointing out hypocrisy only goes so far but we gotta we gotta at least acknowledge it
0: second amendment for white people precisely that's yeah. <laughs> the nra line white people <laughs> shall have the right to keep and bear arms
1: god Gotta love it. Um, do you want to read well, what this do you last
0: think one about? What, I, this one's hard for number eight, it's kind of hard for oh, okay. me. What, what freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. Uh, I can understand that, well, I, I mean, there, okay. Yes, if you're a nonviolent drug offender. Yes, if you're, yeah, mm-hmm. be, I don't know, I, I, this is not my area. Um, I think I can understand people having a problem with this but with it you know I can understand how some people might think it might go a little bit too far to free all prisoners
1: Yeah that's although, a good point that's although that... uh,
0: there are people who are believe in abolition of prisons and I, I'd like to hear what they have to say I just don't know anything
1: about it yeah, and it's not something I'm an expert on obviously, just want to clarify that for, you know, posterity or whatever, but you know, the the thing to keep in mind here, there's two two very important points that we have to to think about when we think about this point. One, how is freedom being defined? Right? Um and I think if we look at the the document as a whole, then we have to understand freedom as freedom to influence power in some way or have power at least be accountable to you, right? Uh, so that you are not at the whims of just whomever, okay? You know, like, I think that's important to note, and it brings up the second point, that they view American legitimacy as sort of a fallacy, right? It's being enforced at the point of a gun. It's not really uh, it, it's not really a legitimate, you know, democratic exercise. Uh, and I think that what they're pointing out here, and what a lot of abolitionists would probably say, and I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, Um but what I would say <laughs> is that I think it's totally fair to question a legal system. Uh, again, violent offense, nonviolent offense, I think it's totally fair to question a legal system that has been deliberately built to penalize black people purely for their own existence, just for them existing. right? So I think it's fair to question that how can we be sure If our legal definition is beyond a reasonable doubt, how can we prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these people are not in jails or prisons, regardless of their offense, because of the racism inherent in the justice system, the racism inherent in our economic system that may have forced them into sort of circumstances that led them down this path? I think that's sort of what they're pointing at. You know, it it doesn't explicitly say we want everyone released unconditionally. It says we want freedom, Hmm. right? Um, and that, I think, is meaningful. You know, the word choice, looking through this whole document, it seems like they had a very particular word choice in mind, you know, with a particular set of definitions they were using. Um, and I think that's very meaningful in that eighth point. to keep All in right, mind. number 10,
0: we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace.
1: Mm-hmm. That pretty much covers it. Yeah, that's pretty... Uh, straightforward ain't it um i i mean it's just saying that we want the things that you need in order to have a functional uh ever developing healthy community you know
0: but you see when capital is making all the decisions capital has every reason to want people to have to scrounge in order to even survive
1: yeah it creates uh it it, it creates uh, a, a sort of scarcity mindset that is not always necessary. And I think that, again, thinking of the context of when this was written and whom it was written by, presumably, not that I think we'll ever know every single author on this piece, but still, you know, the general idea seems to be that these are people who understand very well the political economy of the world they're living in and who understand very well that this sort of scarcity mindset uh, is artificial. It's produced with a political intention. It's not grounded in any empirical reality. Um, and that's something I talk about with my friends a lot, about how, look, man, if we lived in a world where you really there really just isn't enough to go around, then this would make more sense. Not saying it would be okay, whatever. I'm just saying it would make more sense to me. But the fact that we have more than enough land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace to go around if we wanted to, (laughs) uh, and yet we we don't have that in so many communities. um, So scarcity
0: is a tenet of like your free market economics theory. The idea is that resources are scarce, so we need some way of rationing those scarce resources Money and free markets are the best way of rationing scarce resources. Well, for one thing, not all resources are scarce. Yeah, I like saying that our our economic system takes scarce resources and treats them as if they're abundant, and takes abundant resources and treats them as if they're scarce. Like human ingenuity uh, is is an abundant resource, so we treat it like it's scarce. And you know, the uh, clean water and clean air are scarce resources and we treat them as if they're unlimited, you know. So, I mean, food is an abundant resource, but give Monsanto enough time and they actually, you know, these big agribusiness corporations actually reduce the food output from the world and reduce the sustainability of our farmland, et cetera. Yeah,
1: And, and even if you wanted to make the argument as I know a lot of free market people probably would want to, they would say, well, the only reason these things are abundant is because we've had these great engines of accumulation formulated through capitalist uh, economic systems that have produced these things. And you know what? There's actually a grain of truth to that. I'm I'm willing to cede that argument to say that capitalism is at least partially responsible for this huge wave of accumulation over the last few hundred years that has given us abundance in some places. I think but that's what, partially true.
0: What I'm almost, I'm, I'm reluctant to even concede that point because I would, uh, I, I look at, you know, the accumulation for one thing is shared by a few, uh, but but also, you know, look at it, it, GDP is like this. Take all the expenses and all the revenues and add them together. What business report would you believe if you take all the expenses and all the revenues and add them together and call that, you know, the the more, uh, anyway, the GDP masks environmental degradation, it masks, uh, you know, bad, it, it masks what we lose when we don't have adequate education or uh, adequate healthcare or fair labor or, you uh, you know, it's, it's sustainable sort of a, agriculture in mass well, You, you know, take a forest and turn it into commodities and that adds to GDP, but the loss of the forest is a real loss in economic
1: terms, let alone environmental terms. You're right, you're right. There is sort of a false epistemology there that, that you, you understand accumulation and you understand abundance uh, from a certain mindset if you're still doing the capitalist logic. What I was gonna say, and you destroyed that Instantly, thank you. But what I was about, just We have about say, a
0: minute, a couple minutes left.
1: I, yeah, this is a good spot for me to Bring end it on. home, Jay, um, bring it home. What I was going to say is that even if capitalism did bring us all this abundance, quote unquote, um, things don't just stay that way. <laughs> things have to change. As I mentioned earlier, things will change whether you want them to or not. Uh, and I think that what they understood when they were writing these 10 points of what they want, they understood things were changing and we have to put our hands on that change if it's going to mean anything at all to us other than misery. And frankly, I don't see how you argue against that.
0: Well, doesn't the free market system take care of everything?
1: Don't make me argue again. (laughs) Maybe have like 30 (laughs) seconds, man. Bookmark that. (laughs) But you're really good with sound bites. Yeah, I'm not not terrible at it, I suppose. I should put that on my resume. (laughs) I'm really
0: smart for two sentences at a time. (laughs) Here's my response to my question. When you hear free market, think free for all. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, we have a, a cowboy mentality in a spaceship world. You know, a spaceship has <laughs> has limited resources. A, a cowboy on the open prairie has unlimited resources, except for the, you know, the Native Americans and the African-American slave. But the, otherwise, there's unlimited resources. So we got this cowboy mentality. We take that cowboy mentality to a spaceship and, like, do what you want. You know, would you want to be on a spaceship with somebody who's, like, Do what you want, man. Let it all hang out.
1: Uh, You told me I was good with sound bites and here you give me a cowboy mentality in a spaceship world. I'm going to use that. Oh, thanks.
0: I didn't invent it, but you can credit me if you like. I will. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Jake, for joining me. We are going to, to have to end it there. Thanks for joining us with Truth to Power. Come back soon. Everybody wave. (laughs) mm <laughs>